You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, let's open in prayer. Our gracious Father, we do thank you that our sin and our guilt has been nailed to the cross and that we bear the burden of that guilt no longer. And thank you that Christ has borne the punishment for all those who will trust in him, a sacrifice and an atonement that is sufficient to pay the price for all of us here. What an infinitely perfect sacrifice he is. And we thank you not only for his death, but for his resurrection as well. We ask now that you would give to us the attention and discipline and the focus that we need, not only in the preaching of your word, but in the hearing of it, to honor and obey you and love you as we should, and to focus in on your word, uh, that you might be glorified through us in our understanding of your truth. Thank you for your word, which speaks to us of these things, and help us to give proper attention to it. And we pray that you would glorify yourself here this morning in all that we do, and in our meditation, and may it be pleasing to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to John chapter 19, the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 19, we will read together verses 16 through verse 22. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. This is speaking of Pilate handed Christ over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The death of Jesus Christ is the central event around which all of human history revolves. And when I say the death of Christ, we can incorporate with that and include with that, obviously, the resurrection, which is inseparably linked to the death of Christ. But those two events, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the central event around which all of human history revolves. Now, to the, to the world, that sounds like the most foolish of all statements. Because a worldling would listen to that statement and say, well, are you... Wouldn't you say that the invention of movable type or the, the fall of the Roman Empire or America declaring its independence from Great Britain or maybe that moment in time when in the primordial ooze that first uh, amphibious creature tried to pull itself up onto land with the half fin, half hand and half fin, half foot and take its first breath of air and then roll back into the sludge again before it died? Wouldn't you think that one of those events is the most significant event in the course of human history? And the Christian would say, no, no, in God's plan, from God's vantage point, the most significant event in all of human history is the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament looked forward to and anticipated that event. From creation and through the flood, the expectation of Noah was that one would come who would bruise the serpent's head and who or would kill the serpent's, crush the serpent's head, whose heel would be bruised in that action, and that he would he would come back to life and he would justify those who place their faith in him. All of the Old Testament sacrifices and feasts and festivals of the nation of Israel looked forward to the ministry and the uh, events in the life of Jesus. 
the establishment of the kingdom anticipated that day when the greater son of David would come and establish his kingdom and rule and reign over men and all of the saints would enjoy the blessings of that kingdom. All the Old Testament prophecies and predictions regarding the Messiah all look forward to that day. And all the Old Testament saints on the timeline of God's, uh, on the timeline of God's perspective were looking forward to that great event of the coming and then the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, on the other side of that, all of the New Testament is the unfolding of all of that. The Old Testament expects it. The New Testament explains it. And all of human history since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has been the unfolding of God's redemptive plan as the gospel is brought to nation after nation, to different peoples and tongues and tribes, and the church expands throughout the world. And we look forward now to the next great event on God's calendar, which is the return of Jesus Christ. But all of God's redemptive plan hinges around and focuses around, revolves around the death of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection from the grave. Now, there are other things, obviously, that have happened. Rome rose and Rome fell. And movable type was invented. And the Internet was invented. And America declared its independence from Great Britain. But all of these things pale in comparison to that great event, which is what God planned before creation. It is what everything before it looked forward to. Everything after it is the explanation of and the outworking of. And all of future, all of the future in heaven and in the kingdom will revolve around that one great event, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for his people. Because God's plan has been, since eternity passed, to glorify his name by redeeming sinners. And so creation and the fall and all of that is all about God redeeming sinners. And in the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the great outworking of that central element of human history. Your birth, my birth, the rise of America, the fall of America, all of that is completely insignificant. Completely insignificant. In the scope of God's eternal plan. That brings us to John chapter 19. We have looked at now, we finished looking at, all the way up through the end of verse 16, the fifth of the five trials that Jesus had before Pilate. There was Annas and then Caiaphas and then he went to Pilate and then he was Pilate sent him to Herod and Herod sent him back to Pilate. So Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and back to Pilate. We have now looked at the fifth of those five trials. And in verse 16, Pilate hands Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. And now there are only two events left in chapter 19 that we have to look at. The death of Christ and his burial. His death and his burial. So we turn today to the death of Christ. And we're going to be looking at those verses that we read at the beginning, verses 17 through verse 22. And we're going to look at two events, two things. A public crucifixion and then a published accusation. The public accusation is the sign. So first of all, a public crucifixion. Pick it up at verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, you may not have noticed it, but in the very opening phrases of verse 17, there are a couple of significant prophecies that are fulfilled in those open in that opening phrase. Verse 17 says that they took Jesus Therefore, and he went out. The fact that they took him is a fulfillment of prophecy. And where he went and how he went was a fulfillment of prophecy. Let me give them to you. The fact that they took him is fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, which says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open a mouth. Listen, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open up his mouth. When they seized Jesus and they took him out of the praetorium, out of Pilate's residence, out of the public courtyard and all the way outside the city, they led him from point A to point B like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Probably bound, as it were, in chains or uh, in cords or ropes, 
They took him from one point to another point. That fulfilled Isaiah. It is almost as if Isaiah was looking forward to time and saw the Messiah being led from one point to another, just like he would take a lamb and lead it to the slaughter. And that lamb would say nothing. That lamb did nothing. That lamb gives, gives no resistance. Why? Because the lamb doesn't know it's about to be slaughtered. But in this case, Jesus knew he was about to be slaughtered. But he went as peacefully and as docilely and as willingly as a sacrifice could possibly go. And he was led out to the slaughter. The second thing to fulfill Scripture there is the fact that Jesus was taken outside the city to be crucified. Now, it was the custom of the Romans to not put anybody to death inside of the city walls. And it was also the custom of the Jews, unless, like with Stephen, they were in a hurry and they just wanted to to take somebody's life. It was the custom of the Jews to also do executions outside the city because they didn't want blood inside the city. They didn't want people giving up their lives and having people executed inside the city because death was something that for the Jews in the presence of a dead body defiled them. It was ceremonial defilement. So Jews and Romans would both crucify victims, not crucify, but uh, execute criminals outside of the city walls. This is fulfills in the Old Testament a type or a shadow in one of the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. The bull, after the bull was sacrificed and its blood was to be sprinkled inside the most holy place to make atonement for sinners, that bull, its entrails and its skin and all of the remains of it were taken outside of the city to be burned. And we see that, for instance, in Numbers, well, in Leviticus chapter 16, where it says, The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, and afterwards he shall come into the camp. Exodus 29, verse 14 says, The flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuge you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Why is it that they made it go outside of the camp, away from the people? Because that was intended to picture something, to portray something. That is, that the presence of this sin that this animal bore, and the death as a result of that sin, was not something to be tolerated and welcomed as part of the people. It was to be put outside. It was to be sent off because it, it symbolized the shame and the disgrace of that sin and the unwelcomeness of it amongst the people of God. So it was to be taken outside the city. And in fulfillment of that type and that shadow, Jesus was taken outside the city because you see down in verse uh, da, 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 verse 20 where it says that Jesus was crucified near the city. It was outside the city, but it was near the city. And that, of course, is picked up by the author of the book of Hebrews where the author of the book of Hebrews uh, likens that to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of it. Hebrews 13 11 and 12, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. The author of Hebrews is referring to what I just read to you from Leviticus. And then he says this, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, let us, therefore, bear that same shame and reproach by being willing to be outcasts from whoever it is that cast us out, so that we may bear the reproach of Jesus Christ. So that was a fulfillment of Scripture, that he would die outside of the city. Why didn't they just stone him right there at the praetorium on the pavement? Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they crucify him right outside Pilate's residence? Because that would not have fulfilled Scripture. But Scripture must be fulfilled. So he was taken outside the city. Verse 17, So they took him therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Now, if you're familiar with the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might be saying to yourself, well, hold on a second, wasn't there somebody else that bore his cross? A man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, right? But John says that Jesus himself went out bearing his own cross. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that they found a bystander to bear his cross for him. Is that a contradiction? No, because what you have is what? Jesus leaving initially bearing his own cross. 
At some point along the journey, he was too tired or too weak or unable physically to bear the weight of his own crossbeam. So they grabbed Simon, who was in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He was from Cyrene. They grabbed Simon of Cyrene and made him carry it the rest of the way. Now, if you only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke to go by, you might not understand that Jesus left the presence of Pilate carrying his own crossbeam, but he was too tired to do it. Probably, or too, too physically beaten to do it. Probably from loss of blood, he was unable or from the physical exhaustion. Remember, he had spent the entire night awake. After an otherwise busy day that exhausted the disciples so much that they fell asleep in the garden rather than praying, Jesus didn't fall asleep. Instead, he went in and he prayed, and he was exhausted from that very act of praying. Then he was seized, and then he spent the entire night being shuffled from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate again until he's finally brought out here, and then he was whipped and beaten. Probably too physical, uh, too physically exhausted to go very far at all. So they grabbed Simon of Cyrene, who Mark says is the father of Rufus and Alexander. Now, who's Rufus and Alexander? You know? Yeah, join the rest of human history. We don't know who Rufus and Alexander is. But interestingly, Mark mentions Rufus and Alexander as if we're all supposed to know who Rufus and Alexander are. But in the first century, probably most Christians knew of this Rufus and Alexander, whose father was Simon of Cyrene. There is a Rufus mentioned. That's a wonderful name, by the way. I like that. My kids are lucky I didn't name them Rufus. There's a Rufus mentioned in Romans chapter 16, I think it's verse 13, and he is a leader in the church at Rome. And Paul says, greet Rufus. So many people think that that is the Rufus that is being mentioned by Mark. Mark being Peter's gospel or the gospel that Peter would have oversaw when he wrote it. Uh, Peter would have known Rufus and Alexander, and Mark just mentions Rufus and Alexander as if we all know him, but we don't. So Simon of Cyrene was, was seized in order to carry the cross of Jesus and Simon would have taken it right to the location of the crucifixion. So it says, this is called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. Now, what is the place of the skull? Or where is this located? There have been a few different places suggested. We're 2,000 years removed from this event. So there's no way for us to go to the city of Jerusalem today and stand in the very place where they dug a hole and put the cross of Jesus. There's no way for us to do that. Because we don't know, being this far removed from history, exactly where that was. But there have been a few different locations suggested. Let me give you a few of the locations that have been suggested. There is a location on the east side of Jerusalem, just outside the temple wall. There is, uh, you remember when I mentioned at the beginning of chapter 18 that there is that, uh, the Kidron Valley, which runs down the east side of the city of Jerusalem, and it's right outside the temple wall, and it kind of sits up on a hill. And right across the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives, which goes up. It's not very far at all. And on the side of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, it's been suggested that on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem, looking, as it were, across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, it would have been right along a major thoroughfare. And, and John tells us that it was in a very public place because many of the Jews saw him as they walked by on their way into the city of Jerusalem. So that location has been suggested as the place of the skull. But most people really don't think that that is the location, though it preaches good. It makes for a good sermon if you're going to preach on that location because, well, it overlooks the Garden of Gethsemane where he suffered. And, of course, it's right next. It would be right along the same route where he came into the city on the back of the donkey uh, on Palm Sunday to the hails and the shouts of the crowd. But that's probably not the location. I'll use with two others. There is a location on the western side of the city of Jerusalem that today is inside the city of Jerusalem, but in the first century would have been outside the city walls. And today it is known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is one of these places that's very ostentatious, uh, uh, ornate, uh, gold drizzled all over the place churches where they built a church over top of a tomb. And today you can go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and there is a tomb there and there is supposedly the slab where they laid the body of Jesus while they were preparing it for burial. And then there is a place where they say is where he was crucified. Uh, that's on the western side of the city. 
That's probably not it. Um, but there is a spot on the northern side of the city known as the Garden Tomb. Uh, there's no church built over that location. This is what Christians did in the first few centuries after um, after they started being persecuted. Well, I should say after 300, when Constantine made Christianity legal, you know what Christians did. They found a spot and they said, this looks like a good place to have people come and try and wash away their sins and, and get indulgences, so let's build a church here. And people can come in and kiss the rocks and, and bow down to the piece of wood and have years taken off of purgatory. That's what Christians, supposedly Christians, did for centuries. But there is no church built over top of the garden tomb today. It's just a, a, a tomb in the side of a hillside. Um, and it's very, it's been kind of kept up nice and neat today. It looks uh, real peaceful. It would have been outside of the city in Jesus' day, but today it is downtown, almost downtown Jerusalem. And it's right in the middle of a, of a big bustling area there. That garden tomb is probably where Jesus was crucified. There's a little rock formation very near to that. That's a limestone rock formation that looks like a skull. where The water has washed away what looks like eye sockets and a nose socket. And that's very near to the garden tomb on the north side of the city. It would have been next to a very public roadway where people were walking in. There are two gates on the north and the west side of the city there where people could have walked right past the cross of Christ and then into the city on their way to the temple. For everybody coming from the west and for the north, that would have been the shortest route from outside the city into the very temple itself. And so that is probably the location. But as I say, nobody can be absolutely certain exactly where it is. But most people think it was located at the Garden Tomb. The beautiful thing about living in today's technology is you can go home and you can Google all of this yourself and you can take a virtual tour of all of these locations if you want. Now, why is it called the place of the skull? That's equally intriguing. Now, I mentioned that there is next to the garden tomb or near to the garden tomb a rock formation that looks like a skull. And it doesn't look like it has been carved out by, by anybody. It looks like the water has eroded away naturally the limestone deposit that is there that has created this very rough-looking picture of a skull. And if you just Google images Golgotha, you'll see it. And maybe you've, many of you have already seen it, so you would know what it looks like. Some people suggest that that's why it's called the place of the skull. But there have been two other suggestions as to why it's called the place of the skull. And ultimately, like the location itself, from history, we don't know exactly why it is called the place of the skull. But let me give you the two things that have been suggested in church history. One, some church historians and early church fathers believed it was called the place of the skull because that was a place where criminals were executed and beheaded and their skulls were left there out in the open. So if you went to the place of the skull, you'd be walking among uh, skulls laying all over the ground. The problem with that is that Jews would not have, have taken well to dead bodies or heads lying around right outside the city walls because that would have been unclean and defiling to them. So they wouldn't have tolerated that. Further, in verse 41, you'll notice that John says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. How many gardens have you been in where there are skulls laying around all over the place rotting and it stinks like the stench of death? Not very many. So that's probably not the low. That's not why it was called the place of the skull. Let me give you an even more fanciful reason. This was suggested by Origen and Augustine and Jerome, some early church fathers. They said that it was called the place of the skull because that's where Adam was buried and they had discovered Adam's skull in that place. Now that'll preach. Right? If you can craft a message around the idea that the second Adam was crucified in the place where the first Adam was buried and that they found his skull there. And you have the second Adam giving his life in the very place where the first Adam suffered death. And you have both Adams dying and, and being buried in the same location. That'd make a great sermon. The problem is we know with absolute certainty that if they discovered a skull there, which is suspect, 
that it was not the skull of Adam. How do we know that? Because the entire world was covered with water and destroyed. And nothing from the previous world was left but the dirt. There is no way. Anytime somebody says to you, we have discovered the location of the Garden of Eden, you understand that they do not understand their Bibles. Because everything prior to the flood has been utterly wiped out and destroyed. Nothing is as it was. The skull of Adam became, if it even existed at the time of the flood, it became coal or fossil fuel, and you are as likely to burn the skull of Adam in your gas tank as you are to ever discover it anywhere else. It has been completely wiped out. So it wasn't that. So why do they call it the place of the skull? Most likely because of that rock formation. And that's why many people think that that's the location where Jesus was, was crucified. All right, it was the place of the skull, and in Hebrew it is called Golgotha. Verse 18, there they crucified him. And with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Now, John's account of the crucifixion is as follows. Verse 18, there they crucified him. That's it. John doesn't give any gory details. doesn't talk about the blood. doesn't talk about the suffering or the anguish. John is very short on details regarding the actual sufferings of Jesus. And I'm going to take the cue from John and handle it the way that John handles it. I'm going to briefly describe to you in the cleanest, most sanitary way possible what this would have involved. But I'm not going to get into any of the details because... Understanding what crucifixion was, generally speaking, is sufficient for us. Because, listen, the power of this fact is not in the amount of physical sufferings that he endured, which is unimaginable to us. But it is in the fact that the one who endured it was himself the infinitely righteous Son of God. It is not the physical suffering, but the one who suffered, which is the focus of the New Testament, that he gave his life for us. Yes, it involved crucifixion. It was unimaginable suffering. A crucifixion was a practice that had come down to the Romans. They didn't invent it. It had come down to the Romans through the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians. And they had a form of crucifixion which was somewhat uh, similar to the way Rome did it. But when Rome kind of grabbed onto that practice, that way of publicly executing criminals, the Romans perfected it. They made it an art form to crucify people. It was incredibly uh, excruciating and painful and humiliating and degrading in, in every way possible. Uh, it was such a humiliating and despicable form of death that, that it was designed to extract the most amount of pain to a suffering individual before they finally died. It was not uncommon for crucifixion victims to remain on, on crosses for days and suffering because it was intended to be a slow death. And the, ultimately, the, the, the goal of crucifixion was to extract all of that pain and suffering and torment. And then when the person finally died, they would die from a number of different causes depending upon uh, the, the wounds that were received and the way that the crucifixion was uh, was e executed and undertaken. Uh, Jesus would have been taken to the place where he was crucified with his crossbeam, and Simon would have dropped that off, and they nailed the crossbeam to the upright, and then they would put nails through the hands, nails through the feet, the, the variety and the ways in which they did this and the different um, the different manners and positions and all of that was up to whoever was doing the crucifixion at the time. And then they would stand the cross up into a hole that was dug for that purpose and let the victim stand there and expire. The Romans did this as publicly as they possibly could. And the intention of doing it publicly was to make a statement to anybody who walked by and everybody who saw it. This is what happens to you when you cross Rome. This is what happens to people who violate Roman law. And they wanted to make an example out of these people. And so the longer it took and the more they were degraded and humiliated, the better it was for the Romans. And that was the goal of crucifixion. So there they crucified him, and they crucified him with two individuals 
a man on each side. Now, John doesn't tell us anything about the reputation of these men or who these men were or why they were crucified with Jesus. But Luke tells us they were criminals. Matthew and Mark tell us they were robbers. It's very possible that those two men were part of the group that was uh, that was following Barabbas. Because remember, Barabbas, he was seized as part of an insurrection. And Barabbas was a robber and a murderer. He had committed murder in the insurrection. I think it's Luke that tells us that. And Barabbas was a thief. And so these men are also thieves, robbers, according to Matthew and Mark. So these could be two men who were who were uh, grabbed along with Barabbas, who were slated for execution on this day. And this is the most public day that it is possible to do an execution on, the day of the Passover, right outside the city of Jerusalem. So there they crucified him with these two other men. And the fact that he is crucified with criminals is itself, again, a fulfillment of Scripture. Are you thinking back to Isaiah chapter 53? Listen to what Isaiah writes. Isaiah 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, Isaiah identifies two things concerning the death and the burial of Christ. Number one, that he is in his death along with wicked men, and he is in his death along with a rich man. Now, in what way was he in his death with a rich man? He was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. In what way was he in his death with wicked men? In the sense that he was crucified alongside two convicted criminals. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Isaiah says he was numbered with transgressors, but he himself was not a transgressor. It was for our sins that he was beaten. It is for our iniquities that he was chastised. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So he stood in our place, and yet he was counted or numbered among them. And if you had been walking along outside the city of Jerusalem that day, you saw three crosses, one, two, three, robbery, king of the Jews, and another robber. He was named and numbered and counted among sinners because he stood in the stead of sinners. So even in his death, he did not die alone. He died alongside of sinners, and he was counted and numbered with them. Now, one of those two men that was crucified with Jesus ended up understanding who Jesus was and that Jesus was suffering as an innocent man. And he came to understand at least his own sin. And on the, on the cross, he repented. And he called out to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's in Luke chapter 23. And I'm not going to preach a message on that. Dave Rich did a couple of years ago. He preached a message on the penitent thief. And that's available on our website. It's a great message. If you never heard it, I would encourage you to listen to that message that he gave on the penitent thief. Okay, so that's the public crucifixion. Now I want you to look at the published accusation. His published accusation, beginning in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now here is how likely, typically, this would have went. After Pilate brought Jesus out onto the pavement and announced the verdict and handed Jesus over to be crucified, Pilate himself would have sat down and written out the accusation against this man for which he was being crucified on a board that would have been hung above each one of these three criminals. Whatever the verdict was, whatever the accusation was, for which they were found guilty, that is what would have been written on this placard and placed above the cross. And this had two effects. Number one, it made sure that everybody understood the crime for which this person was being executed so that everybody could associate the crime with the punishment. And second, it vindicated Rome. And it was evidence to all who watched that, that Rome was just in its declaration that this person be crucified and that they weren't just spurilously crucifying innocent people for no reason whatsoever. So now ask yourself, if you are Pilate and you have to write above Jesus of Nazareth, the crime for which he is deserving of this crucifixion, 
you would want to put on that placard the most hideous of the accusations, the most substantial of the crimes he committed, the worst atrocity that this man had done that deserves this type of public shame, humiliation, and pain. And so what do you as Pilate write on that sign? The King of the Jews. This is Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Is that a crime? Being a king? Is being a king a crime? You know what's stunning about this? That's not a crime. It wasn't even a crime to be called the king of the Jews or to be the king of the Jews. That was no crime. And if you're Pilate, you have to put the worst accusation against this man above his head. And all Pilate can come up with was the king of the Jews. He has nothing else to put there. Not he's guilty of leading an insurrection. Not he encouraged people to not pay taxes to Rome. Not he was an opponent of Caesar and publicly uh, uh, tried to get people allied against Caesar. None of those type of accusations. He is the king of the Jews. And this is testimony to the blamelessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no crime. There is no accusation that could be leveled against him. Even Pilate's testimony revealed he is blameless. He was sinless. He was pure. He was an innocent man. And this is Pilate's way of doing two things. Rubbing this in the Jews' face and declaring the innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no crime worthy of death that he could put on that placard. And so he just wrote, this is Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Now, what was Pilate's motivation in doing that? Did Pilate think that Jesus was a king? No, not a king in any sense that Pilate was familiar with. Pilate didn't believe for a minute that Jesus was a king. Those Jewish leaders that accused Jesus of saying that didn't believe for a moment that Jesus was a king. Certainly not their king. So nobody there believed that. What is Pilate doing? He's doing two things. He is, first of all, rubbing the nose of the Jews in this despicable deed. And he is vindicating himself. He is saying, it is almost as if Pilate were to say this. You want him crucified? Fine, I'll crucify him. But when we put him up there to public shame, this man is going to be forever known as your king. He will be forever known as the one who belongs to you. He's of your tribe. He's one of you. So I will shame him. I will humiliate him. I will kill him, but only to demonstrate that this is what Rome does to despicable Jews like you and to those who dare to call themselves the king of the Jews. It was Pilate's way of saying, you have forced my hand into this. That's fine. I'm going to drag your name through the mud along with it. And so he put on the placard, this is Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Pilate's way of vindicating himself and Pilate's way of shaming the Jews. How do we know that? Because Pilate put this as Jesus the Nazarene. You remember what Nazareth was regarded as? Right? It was a despicable town. A bunch of backwater hicks that lived up in the northern part that contributed nothing to society, nothing to the nation. A bunch of irreligious people that nobody liked and looked down upon. That explains Nathaniel's statement in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's how everybody looked at Nazareth. So for Pilate to put Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, is his way of saying, this is the type of king you Jews deserve. Not Jesus from Jerusalem, not Jesus born in Bethlehem like David was, but Jesus who was from Nazareth, the king of the Jews was his way of despising the Jews and rubbing their faces in it. So now look at verse 20. Therefore, many of the Jews, when they saw this, read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And so Pilate wrote this inscription uh, in his presence. He would have written all of these accusations in all three languages against Jesus. And then that placard would have been carried along with Jesus out to the place of the crucifixion. And it is probably when Jesus began to leave Pilate's presence that the Jews objected to this and said, no, we don't want this to read the king of the Jews, but he said that I am the king of the Jews. And one thing that you and I should remember when we think about this sign that hung above the Lord Jesus Christ's head, 
One of the things that you and I should remember that that charge which hung above his head, the king of the Jews, on that cross, all the charges against us were crucified. So when I think of that sign, what I picture in my own mind is all the charges that were against me. All the violations of God's law that I had committed. Liar, blasphemer, adulterer at heart, covetous, greedy, idolater, disobedience to parents, a gossip and a slanderer, all my violations of the law of God. There is not a sign in all of creation that is large enough to hold all of my crimes against God. But that crime, all of those crimes and all those violations of the law of God are written on a placard and Jesus Christ paid the price for all of those. That sign which bore his crime was no crime at all, but the crimes that I committed were also nailed to that cross. Which is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that the, the crimes that were against us were publicly displayed and publicly nailed to the cross. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he has disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through it. That was the public demonstration of the justice and the wrath of God when all of the crimes and the laws that were against us were publicly nailed to that cross and the price for them was paid in full. That is what you and I should see in the cross of Christ. And it definitely was a public, a public display. Look at verse 20. It says, For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And if we have our location of the northern part of the northern location that I suggested earlier, if that is correct, then it would have been almost in the shadow of the city walls at the time. And it would have been along right along a major thoroughfare. And, and remember this, Passover was a day of the year like no other day of the year. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews who converged upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And hundreds of thousands of Jews came in and out of the city through every entrance on all the gates around the city. There would have been thousands of people walking past Jesus through that entire ordeal from the time that he arrived there and that sign was put up over his head. Thousands of them. And that sign was written in three separate languages. Notice that John says it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Hebrew was the language of the Jews, so most every Orthodox Jew who had grown up reading the Scriptures would have been able to read what was written there. It was also written in Greek, which was the language of the philosophers and the wisdom and the educated people. It was the language of the Koine or common Greek was the language of the realm, the language in which commerce was done. So almost everybody in the Roman Empire would have known that. And Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. It was a language of power in which all of the laws of the Roman Empire were written. So J.C. Ryle in his commentary wisely notes at this point that Hebrew was the language of revelation, Greek was the language of wisdom, and Latin was the language of power. And in, in, on this sign, Jesus Christ was publicly proclaimed as king in the language of revelation, the language of wisdom, and the language of power. And that in Jesus Christ, this is what Ryle says, and I think it's right, in Jesus Christ resides the complete revelation of God and all wisdom and all power. And he was proclaimed by the hand of Pilate, by the hand of a Roman, wicked, pagan, idolatrous ruler. He was declared as king of the Jews in all three of those languages. It was written in three languages. Now, before we leave the, before we leave the, um, oh, one thing I meant to mention is this is significant. There's something else. There's another fulfillment of prophecy going on here. Whenever I, whenever I forget something, I say, oh, this is significant, and then I kind of build it up like, oh, this is great. I've been waiting to drop this on you all week. It's never nearly as good as you might originally think. So just kind of lower your expectations a little bit. Let's come back to reality. There is a, a bit of a, a, a 
there is a prediction from the Old Testament that would have been significant here with the wording of this sign. And it comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 26. And I'll read it to you here in just a second. It is in the context of Daniel describing the 70 weeks of the Messiah, or the 70 weeks that God had decreed for the nation of Israel. And he divides it up into two, uh, two, uh, seven weeks and then 62 weeks. And he says at the end of that 62 weeks, this is what Daniel writes. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, if you're a Jew and you're an Orthodox Jew and you've read the prophet Daniel, you may have read that and thought to yourself, what does it mean that the Messiah will be cut off? Because that wording cut off was a typical or standard way to describe somebody dying. How is it the Messiah could die? Who would expect that the Jewish Messiah would die? Other than a Jew who read the Old Testament, right, and should have understood that, who would have expected that? Jews wouldn't have understood that. And they might have been pondering, what does it mean for the Messiah to be cut off? Now imagine that you are a first century Jew, and you've read the book of Daniel, and you have done the math, and you have have, uh, taken it from Daniel's day to your present day, and you're thinking to yourself, the arrival and the display and the manifestation of the Messiah should be at any moment. We have gone through 69 of Daniel's uh, prophetic weeks here. The arrival of the Messiah should be any moment, so your messianic expectation is high. And you're walking on the way into the city of Jerusalem that day to celebrate the Passover. And lo and behold, on the left-hand side of the road, before you walk into the gate, are these three criminals. And above the one in the middle is written the words, Jesus, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. And the word name Jesus means Yahweh saves. So Yahweh saves from Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And if He is the King, then He is your what? Your Messiah. And now you're walking past the in the city of Jerusalem, and you see your Messiah being cut off right before your very eyes. Publicly like that. Isn't it amazing how God works out the coincidences? They're not coincidences, are they? The providences of every detail of how this happened in order to display in the most public way possible the crucifixion of His Son. Spurgeon says this, Divine providence always has its way. It matters not who may be the persons concerned. God knows how to work His own will in them. It was his purpose that his son should not die upon the cross without a public proclamation of his innocence and an official recognition that he was what he said he was, namely the king of the Jews. And one thing we should note before we leave the wording of the sign is the question of whether or not John's wording here in the sign contradicts the other Gospels. If you read through the other Gospels, you'll notice that the wording that John gives is a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So let's deal with that really quick. Matthew's account of what the sign reads is as follows. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark's account says this is the the king of the Jews. Luke says this is the king of the Jews. John says Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. These are the type of contradictions that atheists love to bring up and say uh, um, this shows that you can't trust the New Testament. Is that a contradiction? No, because all four accounts have what? The central charge, which was that he is the king of the Jews. All four of them got that. Now, if one of the gospel writers said that the sign said this is the king of the Mesopotamians, and another one said this is the king of the Babylonians, and another said this is the king of the Egyptians, and John wrote this is Barney Smith, the king of the Chinese, then that would be a contradiction. But when all four of them succinctly state what the central charge on the sign was, that he is the king of the Jews, John adds the detail that the sign read this is Jesus, king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, we have to keep in mind that when New Testament writers wrote, they wrote in the way that all ancient people wrote at the time, which was that they didn't quote people exactly word for word, and they weren't expected to be taken in that way. When they quoted something, they would loosely state sort of the gist of the central idea. They would summarize what it was that they were quoting, and they could say that this is what it said, and without giving a word-for-word rendition of it, they were quoting something accurately. And that's exactly what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did. 
It's also possible to keep in mind this was written in how many languages? Three different languages. Do you think that all three translations of that central charge read exactly identical? I don't think that they did. Anybody who has translated from one language into another knows that oftentimes you cannot do that. So it might be that John in Hebrew had Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and that in Latin it was read, this is the king of the Jews, and in Greek it said Jesus, king of the Jews, and that each one of the gospel writers is quoting one and not all three of those uh, statements. So it is not a contradiction at all. Now the Jews protested to this, of course, and I'm hurrying to get to the end of this. Verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. What they didn't want was that statement identifying him as the king of the Jews. Though Pilate wanted to make sure that Jesus was forever identified as the king of the Jews, the Jews did not want Jesus to be identified as their king. Why? Because if he is their king, then that implies something, that they are guilty of hanging their king on a Roman cross, right? Hanging the son of David on a Roman cross. So they want it changed from this is actually this individual to this is what he claimed. And suddenly Pilate got a spine. What I have written, I have written. Must have gone to his closet, pulled one out, put it in, but suddenly he's got a backbone. Now, the thing about this situation in which Pilate suddenly has a spine is that he can have a spine now and it doesn't cost him anything because now he's rubbing it in the Jews' face and there's nothing they can do about this. There's no cost to Pilate to stand against them. But again, we see here that not only was it Pilate's intention to do one thing, it was God's intention that something else happened. And so Spurgeon rightly says again, see what God can do. He can make the vacillating Pilate to become stubborn and he can make him resolve to do what one would have thought would have never been, would have been the last thing he would have done. Though his motive probably was to ridicule the Savior, excuse me, yet the thing was done as God would have it. And Jesus on the cross, on, by their proclamation by a Roman authority, was proclaimed King of the Jews. So suddenly Pilate gets a spine and God would have written above his son exactly what God wanted written there. And all of the All of the plotting of the Jews could not change that. The vacillating nature of Pilate could not change that. God would have forever us to know that this one, the king of the Jews, was crucified for us. So when we look at the cross of Christ, we should see three things. We should see the hideous nature of our own sin. That our sin is so deep, so dark, so depraved, so profound, the weight of it so infinite, that it required a death like this to atone for that sin. And it required not only a death like this, but that this death be suffered by one who is infinite in righteousness, and infinite in his perfections, and completely sinless to atone for that sin. That is how deep and dark and horrible the sin weight of only one of us is. And Jesus paid a price that is sufficient to pay to atone for the sin debt of any and all who will trust in him. There is no more work to be done for any of the sins that we have committed or will commit. Second thing we should see on the cross is the love of God on display. That God so loved sinners and that even while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, hostile against him in our mind, in our deed, through wicked works, that God sent his son to die for sinners and to pay the price for their sin. How much does God love sinners? So much that he sent his son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the great manifestation of the love of God, that he would do this and that Christ would willingly do this for his bride, for his sheep, for his people, for those who love him. And third, we should see here uh, a vindication and an a demonstration of the justice of God. From one vantage point, this is the most unjust thing that could ever happen to any individual ever. But from another vantage point, this is the display of divine justice. How is it that God can be merciful to sinners? How can God forgive sin and bring sinners to heaven to be with him? Only by first paying the sin price for them. Only by first atoning for that. Because God's not going to turn a blind eye to sin. He's not going to wink at sin. He's not going to ignore sin. He will see that the sin debt has been punished. 
and that the price has been paid so that guilty sinners can go free and so that guilty sinners can have their sins forgiven. But the sin debt had to be paid first. The weight of our sin, the love of God, and the justice of God, all on display at the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that the King of the Jews was crucified on our behalf, that he died and that he's buried and that he rose again, forever conquering death, so we might have eternal life with you. The weight of that and the profundity of that is just beyond our ability to comprehend or imagine. We thank you that on the cross that our price was paid and our sin debt was paid in full. We are so grateful for that, and all we can do is thank you and worship you and adore you and give to you the honor that you are worthy. Impress these things upon our hearts, and may we not forget them quickly or easily. And may you be glorified as we meditate upon the cross of Christ and all he has done for us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.